right, Luke chapter 6. I had this ready last week, and we didn't meet, so this has kind of been bubbling over for, for two weeks now. It's, uh, it's, I was telling Chuck, if you were here two weeks ago, Chuck did such a great, a great job of bringing, I say job, it sounds so weird, right? Do your job. You know, it's such a, a, it was a good um, exposure to the word of being called and the nets and, and Peter and, and those things. And this, incidentally, is kind of like a tag team onto that. You know, I really wasn't planning it, but the Lord kept kind of bringing me back and saying, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's add more, not add more because it was good, but let's go on to what happens right after this. So that's where we are. This is about discipleship. This is something called the cost of the call. I could tell you, when I was, I was called to follow Jesus back in 1990, I was 14 years old. I was a little country town in central Mississippi out in the woods, a little youth camp. It was on my 14th birthday. I was there with, you know, 500 other kids. Grew up in a Christian home, but just didn't have the, didn't have the I don't know, the wherewithal to really make it, make the faith my own until my 14th birthday. So there was at this camp probably a Wednesday night, you know, and it was the youth speaker and the band and all this stuff. And it was just a powerful thing where I just, you know, connected for me. And I just said, this is what I want. I want Jesus in my life. And it wasn't too many years after that that I began to sense, sense that he was calling me to something even bigger than just being a believer. He was calling me actually to sort of yield and to give my life to follow him and to eventually to, to sort of you know, be trained in a, in a vocation of Christian ministry. And that happened during my college years. And I got to tell you, sort of for each of those instances, both the time that I was saved at 14 um, and even when I was 18 or 19 and I knew God was drawing me into to being a Christian minister, I really didn't know what it would cost. I really didn't know what, what that would require of me. I had no idea what it meant. I had no idea what my life would look like. No idea that I would be here now at 42 years old and in this place with, with you beautiful people. Um, and I, I, that's the, the, the thing about what Jesus does. He never really tells us everything up front. He just sort of says, take one step at a time. Trust me with this. Trust me with this little path that you, that you see, and I'll illuminate a little bit more as we go. I, gotta t- I think the same is probably true of the disciples. Were he to have told them the things that were in store, I bet they would have run for their lives. To look at Peter and James and John and tell these guys, by the way, the Spirit's going to fall upon you. You're going to be chased out of your homes, chased out. You're going to be sent to the ends of the earth and you're going to give your lives. You're going to be martyred for my, for my behalf, but you're going to be so filled with joy that you're going to be singing while you're in prison. They would have said, are you out of your mind? No, this is not what we signed up for. So we're in Luke chapter 6. I want to give you just a little bit of a background to uh, what it meant for Jesus to be a rabbi. If you're familiar with the Jewish background, you know rabbi is just a name meaning teacher. Today, it's sort of a title, you know, pastor. It's the Jewish version of being a reverend or a pastor. Back in Jesus' time, a rabbi was simply a teacher. And often they were uh, professional teachers, of course, but they weren't necessarily located in one school. Often these would be men who were uh, trained from an early age in the scriptures and in the traditions, in the writings, and uh, they would sort of go from town to town and they would stay for a season and they would be paid uh, to do tutoring, often at the synagogue or in private homes. Um, And and they, they would make their living just traveling and teaching. 
They would open up the scriptures and they would teach and they would help other uh, young, you know, the young children sort of learn in, in the synagogues or in the towns. And the usual, the usual method that a rabbi would use to gather disciples, and rabbis had disciples. Jesus having disciples was not a new thing. John, we know, had disciples. Disciple was just somebody who was a student of, you could say that. And the usual method for every other rabbi was something like this. Um, all the children would be sort of just like they were gathered here in the synagogue. Boys and girls would be taught the scriptures from an early age. They would be taught to memorize the scriptures at an early age. This, of course, wasn't around. You know, and the kids didn't have little kid versions of the, the scrolls, right? All you had is oral tradition. So you would use this catechetical method like Meg was talking about to memorize large passages of the scripture. Um, and it was true for boys and girls, but especially for boys, as they got older, by the time they're eight or nine or 10 years old, it was expected that uh, most of the boys would have the entire, would have large passages, if not the entire Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized by heart. That was the expectation. That much of a value was placed upon the word that the children were taught to memorize large passages and to be able to recite those back. And a few of those students, by eight or nine or ten, would sort of, they would present with an especially strong aptitude for theological and biblical learning. And their parents would notice it, and, and they would be even uh, more, more focus would be given to, uh, to training them, and they would re- sort of memorize larger passages. And as these um, boys got older, you know, into their teens, many of them would say, okay, I want to, I want to become like a rabbi. I love the scripture so much. So they would approach a particular rabbi that they were interested in learning from, you know, that had come to their town or were staying in their synagogue, and they would go to this rabbi, and they would interview with this rabbi, and the rabbi would listen to all the, the memorization, and he would ask some questions, you know, uh, from, from, from their understanding of things. And um, essentially, the student would sit and, interview, and, and be interviewed by the rabbi and say, do I have what it takes to be like you? Do I have what it takes to be your, and the term was Talmud, a student. Do I have what it takes to be your student, to be like you, to, to, to know the depths of Scripture like you do? And the rabbi would investigate and, and um, sort of interview these students, and most of them would not make the cut. Most of them did not have the aptitude to become his Talmudim, that's the plural form, his, ra- his students under himself. And he would encourage them, often lovingly, but he would encourage them to go on and find a particular trade. It's great that they have this foundation, they memorize the scripture, but let's be honest, you're not cut out for this. Maybe you need to become a carpenter or a fisherman or anything else, right? But there would be a very select few that he would say, you have what it takes. I accept you. You've studied, you've worked hard. I'm inviting you to come and be my Talmud, to be my student. And if that invitation is given, there's the expectation then, this is a big opportunity. This is like an internship in, in the White House or someone else. You, you don't say no to this, you know? And they would, they would be expected to leave behind their family and follow this rabbi wherever he goes, sitting at his feet, learning from him, and soon this student, this Talmud, would become a rabbi all on his own. 
and he would have said goodbye to his family, and he would have followed and become just like his master. You tracking with me? That's the normal way. So Jesus then shows up, and Jesus, by all accounts, is very much a rabbi. He's understood that way. He is referred to as a rabbi by his friends and by other people. He's functioning very much like a rabbi. He's, he's teaching in the synagogue, right? But he's a little bit different. He's a little off. He's not just in the synagogue where rabbis belong. He's also on the hillsides. Who does that? He's also in boats teaching. Who does that? You know, and he's like not only teaching to sort of this, the, 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 the religious boys and girls, he's teaching to anybody who will listen. Who does that? And he doesn't just quote the ancient rabbinical writings and say, look, look at what such and such rabbi said 200 years ago, or look at what such and such. He does things different. He says, you have, you have heard it said, but I say to you, as if he himself has the authority of, of all of this. He's blowing their minds. But his rabbinic method is not like theirs. Because unlike the rabbis of his day, Jesus initiates this relationship. That's what Chuck talked about last week. Jesus is walking along. Pay attention to this. Think about this in the light of what I just told you. He's looking around and he says, you. Chuck, I'm looking at you, man. Look, looking at you. You follow me. And he doesn't go to the ones who are studying hard in the synagogue. He goes to the fishermen. He goes to the, to the blue-collar workers. As if to say, I want you to be my Talmud. I want you to be my student. I want you to sit at my feet and learn from me. You have what it takes to be like me. I could tell you, if I'm, if I'm Peter and Andrew, James and John, these other ones... The significance of what's happening here is not lost on me. Rabbis don't choose their own students like this. They don't make the offer. Students come to the rabbi and beg to be accepted, but this Jesus is doing it totally different. He's coming after us. He's looking at me and saying, you have what it takes. I want you to come. And he invites them in. And these disciples, and he calls them disciples, they're more than just devoted students they listen and learn and study and imitate their master. So here's our first point. We're going to go to another place. My first point is this. Jesus is different because he's not just looking for devoted students. He's interested in something more than that. He doesn't want the ones who are intellectually the best and the brightest and have everything memorized. He is looking for sons and daughters who are broken and dead, that he can make new again. And he's sending a message to the world. This is who I want to be, my disciples. And he says, you have what, and how do I know this? Because look at what it says. We're in Luke. Oh, I guess I should have read this already. I meant to do that. Let's go up here. <laughs> I, I got ahead of myself. Let's read it in Luke 6, 12. In, the, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Man, we could almost talk for a long time just about that. All night on the mountain talking to God before he comes and he makes these decisions. And when, the, when, the, when day came, he called his disciples. So he has lots of disciples. He has many of them. Many of the ones that are following after him, wanting to be like him. It says that he called them and chose from them 12 who he named apostles. So he's got, let's pretend like he has got 50 or 60 out here. 
But 12, he says, you, I want you to come with me. I want you to follow after me. I want you to be a Talmud. I want you to come and learn from me. And there's nothing unique about these 12 that he calls. He lists them by name. But this is what it says. He came down with them and stood on a level place, and a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Go to verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He's looking at his disciples. He's looking at the ones that he's called to himself and saying, you, poor in spirit, you're my kind of guy. You, broken and weeping, you have what it takes to be a Talmud. This is the ones that I want. Come and follow after me. So he's not looking for good students that he can make better. He's not looking for good students that he can make better. He's looking for broken and dead sons and daughters that he can make alive again. All right, let's skip over to Luke 14. So part one is you have what it takes. Church, you need to know that. You have what it takes to be a Talmud. You have what it takes to be a disciple. But the cost is great. We're in Luke 14. Skip over there. In verse 25, let's read this. Now great crowds accompanied him. By now Jesus is doing extraordinary things and he's drawing, he's getting attention and people want to come and hear him because he teaches in a way that they've never heard. And he does signs and wonders in ways they've never seen. And he's healing them. And he's giving, love, he's giving the Father's love to the poor. He says, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned to them and said, this is what he says, listen to this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, if I'm his PR guy, I'm going to pull him aside and say, hold up, Jesus. We're just now getting some momentum, Right? We're just now getting our pews filled with people, all right? We're getting critical mass. Things are happening in our church. You don't need to go and say stuff like this. That's what I would say to him. I would say, no, you got to say something encouraging, you know, about how much God loves them, which is true, and about how, you know, God has a wonderful plan for their life, which is true, because that's what our kids are talking about today. Those are all true things. But Jesus decides, he looks at the crowds, and he, it's almost like he says, yeah, they need to know something pretty heavy. By the way, guys, Unless you hate everything else, including your own life, you can't be my disciple. And these were his disciples he was talking to. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. They're like, what cross are we talking? He's not, he hasn't had a cross yet. What in the world is he talking about? For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And he gives a few more other metaphors for counting the cost. And he gives an ultimatum. We don't talk about that in our culture. We love to talk about the kind, passive words of Jesus. 
you know, Jesus says, don't judge. We can't judge. Jesus says, love your neighbor. We got to love our neighbor. We don't ever come to this. We never come to the ultimatums of Jesus where he says, unless you hate everything else, you can't follow me. But there's a cost to this that we cannot go any farther with Jesus unless we have agreed to his terms, terms and conditions. You know, the software people, right? You ever know when you install a new software or you sign up for something, you've got that little box of like the terms and conditions and you have to agree. Or, and it's like a thousand pages you have to scroll through that no one ever reads. If I'm a developer, like three paragraphs down, I'm just going to start writing gibberish. You know, like, blah, 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 X, Y, Z, and just junk stuff. And like, you know you're not reading this, so why? Da, da, da. I just Because no one reads it. We just assume it's okay, and we hit, I agree. So we can get on to the stuff. And Jesus says, there are terms and conditions to this. Count the cost and make the choice. Jesus says, you can love money and the things of the world, or you can love me, but you can't love both. So choose one or the other right? You can love the affection of the world, and you can love the respect of men, or you can love me, but you can't have it both ways. Choose which one do you want. You can love, you can pursue the kingdom, my kingdom, or you can pursue your own, but you can't pursue both. He says, you got to make a choice, crowd. You got to hate all of this stuff, or you can't follow after me and be my disciple. So he says, make a choice, he says, that choice to follow me is going to be painful. There's a cross involved. There is death to yourself involved. There is death to every right that you think you have in this world. The right to self-determination gets nailed to the cross if you're following after me. Your right to justice, that gets second. That's, that, that's sacrificed on the cross. Your right to your rights, it's all gone if you're following after me. He says, your family won't understand it. Friends are going to think you're an absolute lunatic. Employees are going to pass, employers are going to pass you up for promotions. Everyone's going to think you're wrong, but that's the cost of the call. And I just, even at this early point in our church, y'all, I want to be clear to myself and to my kids and to you. There is a great cost to what Jesus is inviting us into. There's tremendous cost to this. And it's not like, a, oh, there's a, there's a tear for the super spiritual, but here's the other things. Jesus said you can't have, it's all or nothing. And he's gracious, he's kind, he meets us where we are and pulls us along. He's not an absolutist that says, figure it out now or you're going to go to hell. He doesn't do that at all. He's so kind and he's so patient. He's pulling us along, but he says, but this is the standard. I want everything. I, have a, I, I, I require all of your affection, all of your devotion, all of your loyalty. Let me read. Let me read. This quote's behind us. I want to read this. You guys, you've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I hope. He was, a, he, was a, he was a pastor uh, during World War II in Germany, German Lutheran pastor during the resistance, you know. Um, he, was, he, was, he was devout. He was just in love with the Lord. And he was ministering at a time where it was very difficult to be a biblical Christian. It was easy to be a cultural Christian in Germany in the 1930s. Very easy. You had all kinds of, it's just the easiest thing in the world. But to be a biblical Christian, especially a pastor, 
You walk around with a bullseye painted on your head. And even before this time, even before the pressure of the, of, of the culture upon him, Bonhoeffer knew that he's ministering to a world that was obsessed with cheap, what he called cheap grace. And this is what he says about it. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate, he says. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It is the call of Jesus Christ to which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift of which, which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it cost a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man his only true life. And Jesus says there's a tremendous cost to this. So that's our, last move, our, our second movement. Here's our third movement. We're in John 6. Jesus gets even heavier. As if that's not enough, right? He's like, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't offended my quota today. I need to do a little bit more. He's paring down. He wants people to know the absolute requirements of what it means. And in John 6, he's given some of these same words. We're not going to read a lot of this, but he gives some words. He talks about it. Um, in 6, like, let's, say, let's, let's read this. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's just talked about being the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. And they, and they say, how can this man do this? And, and John 6, 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last. I got to tell you, I've been reading this for years and years, and that still, that still makes me kind of like, ugh. Is there a better translation than this? What does the message say? <laughs> Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood as eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, listen to this and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. All of a sudden, the lights go, and the, the, the lights are flashing, and it all goes off in my heart. I'm saying, aha, this is what Jesus wants for us. This is it right here. This is what he wants. He doesn't just want us to, you know, to kind of walking around, you know, eating flesh and drinking blood. We're not cannibals. What he wants is me to be in him and him to be in me. That's it. And realizing that's, that's a lot farther than even discipleship as I understand it. So he says these words to them. Look at what it says here. Skip down. They're, they're complaining about this. Go to verse 66. Chapter 6, verse 66. Yes, the irony is not lost on me. After this, many of his disciples, 
not followers, his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. How does that feel? It's like if I'm preaching this right now and like, you know, half of you get up and you're grumbling and you grab your coats and leave. Maybe you're thinking about doing it. I don't know. Help yourself. That's how Jesus is doing this and it says many of them take up and they just go and they say, this is too hard for us. We can't do this. He's asking us to go to a depth of a place with him that we're not ready to go. Look, I'm all for being a, I'm all for being a follower of Jesus. He's going to help me out. He's going to be my, my buddy, right? He's going to be there for me. I'll even consider being a disciple and really being devoted and learning a whole lot about Jesus. I'll consider that. I'll consider doing a Bible study. I'll consider putting the app on my phone. But you and me and me and you and this sort of weird mystical intimacy that I don't fully understand, I can't do this. He turns to his disciples, to 12, right? He says, do you want to go away as well? I wonder if he's discouraged. I wonder if he's thinking, fine, all of you go. I bet he's expecting some, maybe he's expecting some of the 12 to go, I don't know. Simon Peter said, this is it, Chuck, from two weeks ago. Peter, man, he knows. <laughs> he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. As if to say, Jesus, it doesn't matter what you say. You could say that red is blue and blue is red and the earth is flat and we would believe you because you are the Holy One of God and everything that comes out of your mouth is absolute truth and it defines our reality. So whatever you have to say, Jesus, as difficult is it for me to understand or accept, I will follow you. And he calls him into the deep. He calls us... He calls us past belief only. And in America, we're like 80% of us are in this belief category, right? Ask eight out of 10 people on the street, you know, what their religious preference is. Most of them will say, I'm a Christian. Of that group, a few are going to be followers, right? Ones that really are sort of committed in some way to follow Jesus. You know, I don't go to church, but I'm a follower. Okay. You hate the bride, but you love the bridegroom. Okay, whatever. It's fine. Of the followers, there's a few that are going to be disciples, as I understand it. Devoted to learning, devoted to studying, devoted to the habits of the faith, right? But I wonder if there's even a farther, deeper place that Jesus wants you to go. I know we can argue, we can say, well, really, that deeper place is biblical discipleship. Yes, I get it. Just bear with me here for this illustration. A little bit past this, into intimacy with Him. Mystical union with Him. And He's saying, that's where I want to take you. Here. Don't, be, don't just believe in me. Don't just follow me. Don't just want to sit at my feet and learn. Come on, we're going to go into the deep places. I'm going to abide in you and you and me. And I believe that's the call that Jesus has today to his church. And here's the reality of it. Think through what that means for you and I in the day ahead. Many today in the church, in our culture, are walking away or will walk away. 
That's the reality of it. Friends, we will be a remnant. We will be. That's the reality of it. The cost is becoming too great. That's why Jesus says you need to know and count the cost now. Think about what you're doing. And I, I want to be the kind of church that says this to people. In love, of course in love. But says to people, look, you need to know that if you come into King's Church, this is a place that, we, look, we count the cost. We're going to talk about what it means. We're going to pay the price for this. We're going to hold each other accountable. We don't believe in cheap grace. We believe in costly grace. Because Jesus calls us to, take, to go to the cross with himself. And we can't play around with church. We don't have time to play around with church. We've got to get real. We've got to get serious. And he says, count the cost. I want you to do this. I want you to ask him for a revelation of his love to you because I think that's, that's at the root of where all of this is. When we understand his love for us and understand what that cost him. And when he's inviting us to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, that's not just partaking in the sacrament of communion. That's, that, that's a spiritual union with Christ. He and I and I and him. Ask him for a revelation of his love to you. Brian, come on up if you would. Ask yourself, is there really anywhere else that I want to go? Does anyone else love me more than him? <laughs> no, no one does. <laughs> My wife loves me more than anybody in the world, but she doesn't love me more than Jesus does. Does anybody in the world love me as much as Jesus does? Has anything made more sense in my life than the kingdom of Christ? No. Let's stand up. Let's do this. St. Augustine says this. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Lord Jesus, we, we're, we're, Lord, we're at a place, Lord, of just, we see you, we see you high and lifted up. We see the price that you paid for us and we're drawn to you. We're drawn to the love you have for us. We're drawn to your call. We're drawn to your invitation, Lord. We pour in spirit. We're drawn to you. And when you point your finger at us and say, you have what it takes, Lord, we're going to believe you. We may not feel that way, but we believe you. We'll take you at your word. You know what you're talking about. Oh, we're going to weigh the cost again today. Whatever you ask of us, Lord, it's going to be worth it. Or we're restless until we find our rest in you.